Net-A-Porter presents the Incredible Women podcast, Series 6, Champions of Change. Welcome to the Incredible Women podcast, where we are celebrating Champions of Change. We will be introducing you to women who are leading the charge, driving change, and really pushing for progress through their work. Some you'll be familiar with, and others we're excited for you to meet. I'm Kay Barron, Fashion Director at Net-A-Porter, and I'm delighted to be joined for this episode by Naomi Shimada. What does it mean to heal our own relationship to our bodies ourselves and not waiting for some brand to tell you that you're good enough? You know, I don't expect capitalism to make me feel better about myself. Author, model, writer and broadcaster. She uses all those platforms to be a voice for positive change. Speaking out against oppressive body standards, questioning the impact of social media on mental health, and now inspiring her readers to practice tenderness in their everyday lives and actions. She's beautiful, bold, brave and brilliant. And in her own words, is just trying to stay soft in a hard world, which I think is something we can all learn from. So let's meet her to discover more. Naomi, welcome. It is such a pleasure to be speaking with you. How are you and where are you in the world today? Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. I'm actually in Milan. We're celebrating Champions of Change in this season, which is obviously what we feel you are. But how would you describe your relationship to change? Wow, I feel like I'm trying to be as malleable and as open to change as possible all the time. I think change is something we so often fear, but everything we want sits in that crux of being able to embrace change. I'm always asking myself, where am I gripping too hard? Or where am I not willing to to let go or to surrender to this experience? Unfortunately, we need to get uncomfortable to change. Change is uncomfortable. Otherwise, things stay the same. Changes of location is something that you've grown up with because Mm -hmm. you've lived in Japan, the US, UK and Spain, mm-hmm. and now you're in Milan. Mm-hmm. But also, I suppose, when you find yourself in a new country, can you could you speak Italian before? No, I'm learning now. I speak Spanish and I, I speak what I call baby French when you learn a language when you're young and then it kind of freezes <laughs> in that, as, at that level for the rest of your life. But do you feel you have a sense of adventure, though, for travel? I think... Travel has been, or, you know, the moving has been just this thing that has set the tone to my life. I've been moving what feels like (laughs) so many times over in my lifetime. And every time has been a completely different cultural experience. And I feel like it's truly made me who I am. But I think, you know, time and certainly age impacts impacts your experience of how how you adhere to those changes you know when I when I moved to New York 12 years ago my life was sociality and being social for example you know like I was out every single night my experience of living was meeting people where now 10 years later my needs are different I pretty much don't go out at all anymore (laughs) And the world has changed in the way and how we interact. You know, there's so much more like online interaction, less IRL, less by chance. And also how much a difference in, yeah, in maybe not going out or it being surrounded, 
our personal lives or my personal life in particular not being based on like nightlife which used to be such a big big part of my life I grew up being such a club kid everyone I met was you know on a dance floor of some kind so I really changed that kind of fertile ground for how I make connection but I wanted to say in the work that you you do the features you've written the post the podcasts that you've hosted you have become something of a figurehead of changing beauty perceptions. How did that happen? And and you might not see it in yourself, but we do see you as a pioneer. But how does that feel from, from your perception? It's really interesting because I feel like I'm only just gathering the language to describe the ways that I would, the intention behind my politicization, especially when it comes to what I was discussing in fashion at the time, you know, this was such a long time ago. I started having these conversations publicly about yearning for more, you know, I feel like that word diversity gets used so much and like at the crux of it, you know, I, I think what at the word at the time, I didn't really have the words to describe my feeling and my intention behind it. But now I know that at its core, I just want and think that everyone deserves to be valued for who they are, you know, and I was in the modeling space. That was my space to be able to have those discussions that no matter what we look like, we deserve to be seen and loved and appreciated as we are for the truth of who we are. So because I was a front-facing model, I was discussing it in modeling terms, you know, of, of what it means to what it means to have that kind of visibility looking back it feels like it was a very it was a baby step into the for into the foray and I didn't necessarily think that I was a person that was there to discuss beauty ideals for me at its core it's it's something so much deeper than that you know the beauty is or how we define beauty especially when we're talking about it in terms of our industry that is like the first layer, but the intention or the feeling behind it for me was much, much deeper than that. I mean, you know, the conversation's been happening kind of quietly for a long time, but I think actually coming kind of into, you know, the public forum and, and being discussed openly has only been in the last few years, which is it's crazy to think of it, but there's still a lot of work to be done, but I feel like we've got to a, a better space now. Yes. And I mean, I agree with you, but when I, when, you know, the kind of peak point of me being involved in this conversation was almost 15 years ago, like the visibility aspect has really shifted very quickly in the last few years, but in the grand scale of time, it's taken ages. There's also um, I think bigger questions that we're also, that are starting to take place or that people are starting to think about of what the, what does this mean in in a larger political scale like in the world you know the fact that yes we you know like in terms of visibility say for example yes someone using a bigger size model now but most of the time they don't sell the, those size clothes for example or yes there's lots more black models um, in campaigns, in editorial or, you know, black people in general in editorial positions in the industry. Yes, all of these things are true. But what is the societal, how, you know, how I think things just also move very slowly, you know, 
And I think when we try to measure things in, in the scale of time that we have, things take a really long time to really change. They do. And I think, because you still model now, mm-hmm. um, how do you find the industry now in comparison to when you were first scouted? Um, I, I think the landscape has changed a lot. Like, you know, I can't, I cannot disagree with that. I think if you could have told me 15 years ago, 10 years ago, even, you know, what we would be able to be seeing right now, you know, I I would have loved to hear that, you know, because there were moments where I really felt so, you know, I guess a pioneer is never really a word I would use for myself, but it was a lonely time to have those conversations. Like it it wasn't, you, you know, there weren't many people like me trying to talk about something that they felt I felt was inherently wrong. And did you feel the times that you wanted to to quit, to leave? Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, things just to put it into perspective, like the fact that someone who is anything above what what the average model, you know, who gets casted for big campaigns, she's probably like a size four or six UK, right? Generously. And the fact that anybody more bigger than that, and I'm just talking about size because that's predominantly what I was speaking about at the time, um, could be casted for a normal brand, like was unheard of, was like actually unheard of. So the fact that, you know, I mean, whether it's a quota or whatever that's trying to be filled, the fact that it's almost a normal, a norm now, I mean, at least for, at least for you know, commercial brands. Yeah, and I think that it's crazy and it's sort of disappointing that we're still talking about it because it's not quite the norm yet. It's still a talking point when, you know, when brands do sort of change from their like sample size and they and they're and they're more inclusive. Which is, I'm hopefully we'll get to a point where we just never have to speak about this. But I think it's important to still talk about it now when there's still brands who aren't doing it. I also think, what is our expectation of those brands? You know, like if they don't make the clothes. They're not committed to serve that yeah. kind of customer ever, which I think most fashion brands, like if we think about, you know, how a brand's aesthetic and how their market value, I mean, there's a reason why brands, you know, there's huge brands that like burn all their merch that they don't sell because to keep something at a price point, th- this idea of creating exclusivity, that's what those brands are built on. So this idea of sizing and all this stuff that I think like so many brands build their aesthetic on not serving to everyone, if that makes sense. I'm not agreeing with it. Listen, I'm not agreeing with it, but I I have less expectation. Like, you know, when we talk about change, like I think about it on a real tangible level. And when I look at a lot of these fashion brands or like, you know, I think it's also because I've been having this conversation for a long time. And like, I've also moved on to exploring it in other ways. And what does it mean to heal our own relationship to our bodies ourselves and not waiting for some brand to tell you that you're good enough? You know, I don't expect capitalism to make me feel better about myself because that's not the idea that it's invested in. Well, it gives a brand too much power. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So I think, you know, yes, I think it would be great, but I don't think, but I'm not holding, I'm not holding out for it to happen because I'm, 
I'm I'm creating the world that I want to see and be a part of tangibly in a way that I know how and asking whatever brand that we could name to suddenly choose a you know I just don't think that the, those are world building possibilities anymore in a way that I did when I was young well talking about that um, and what you can focus on how would you describe your the work that you do these days and what's inspiring you and what do you feel that you're being kind of called towards because you've got such an amazing powerful voice where where are you where are you putting that next So where I really see the crux of my work or my life's work, because I am really trying to rethink how we think about time and that, you know, this is the work that I will be doing for my lifetime is really being able to connect over the things that make us most human, you know, the messiness, the beauty, you know, and I think that takes vulnerability, that takes courage for all of us to be able to connect over the things that really make us who we are. So that's really where I see what my life and my work is about. And that can maybe take all sorts of mediums, whether that's through a podcast or writing or, you know, just speaking and sharing space, the unveiling of the things that that stop us from being able to see each other. You co-authored a book called Mixed Feelings, exploring the emotional impact of our digital habits. I mean, how did that book come about? Because that was just pre-pandemic, I think. Um, and what is, I mean, you've, you've explained a little bit, but what is your actual relationship like with social media now? Yeah, I mean, that whole book experiment, me and Sarah always joke that my co-author that I, I wrote it with at the time, that it was um, our exorcism. Yeah. and <laughs> We all need one. And I, I have to be honest, I really, since, since that moment, the whole book process really made me look at my own habits of uh, the full title of the book is Mixed Feelings, exploring the emotional impact of our digital habits. So it's, you know, thinking about how the use of technology Because, you know, I don't believe the technology is inherently evil. The technology is neutral. It's how we use it or how it's been programmed and how we use it that creates, yeah, the the quote-unquote mixed feelings. And I think, like, the connection thing that I'm discussing or, you know, I think social media just or the way it's been programmed just exacerbates the human experience. So it just highlights... um, you know, where we might have insecurities, vulnerabilities, and also and also magnifies our, our qualities that make us human, that, you know, ultimately, as human beings, we all want to be seen, loved, cared for, and connected and adored, you know, we, and especially now, I think more than ever, we're seeking true connection. And we're kind of going about it in these ways that, that feel, you know, that kind of we flirt with the idea that connection is, is just out there, that it's so close and it feels harder and harder to actually reach. Well, I think we've gone from social media has, has made us crave attention. And then from that, we've they've kind of moved forward a little bit more and it's like now it's gone back to or moved forward or gone back to connection. Totally. It feels, and also, you know, um, the chemicals, just the, the, the hormones that get activated in us 
that are, you know, the prog- how it's been cr- programmed. You know, they really, they really toy with our emotions and, and those things that, that I'm discussing that are yearning to be seen, loved and connected. And suddenly, you know, we, they've become our new value systems of how we value whether we're, we're living a worthy life. And I think that's where the danger, the danger comes in. Yeah, well, to just finish up on my relationship to social media these days is, you know, I really struggle to have it on my phone. Are you quite good at taking it off then? I'm, I have it off 99% of the time. And if I choose to upload something or like choose to share something, um, I, in all honesty, I download it, post and delete it again because... I think this stuff is so highly addictive. We just have to have real conversations about that. You know, like it's built to addict us. It's not because you're weak. It's not because, you know, you have a problem. But it's, it's such, it's programmed so insidiously that, you know, I'm sure we've all felt that feeling of, You don't even know how, but your phone was on the other side of the room and somehow you've picked it up and you've lost half an hour of your life and you have, you know, you're literally like, how did that just happen to me? Like, you know, it's like this weird, it's this terrifying autopilot that we go on to. And for me, I really like being able to think about my own ideas and having my own perspectives on the world. And I love being able to, to have space in my brain and the second that I have a day where I have it on my phone, I too fall under the spell. So I just have to be so mindful and the only way I can have a healthy relationship to it is like by having it just on my desktop or not having it on my phone. And you've described, I mean, in I think it's the kind of opposite of um, Instagram and social media, but you describe your tender contributions newsletter that you write for Substack as practicing softness in a hard world. And you do share personal moments in your life in a public space. It's not Instagram, but it's it's different. But how how important is that outlet to you? And how do you feel about putting your yourself? Because I think putting an image out there is very different from actually kind of, you know, writing really what's happening in your life at that time. Mm. I mean, it's a space that I am loving more and more. Because I really appreciate being able to, I I yearn to share and connect, you know, like I understand, like I, you know, thinking about my first array onto the internet, like my MySpace is my first blogs, like, you know, I've written since I was a kid. I love writing and sharing, but I think this, the medium of Instagram where we just scroll past terrible traumas of the day, whether personal, uh, you know, global disasters like the way we become uh, desensitized I mean and how fast our thumbs scroll over these things like that just disturbs me and I'm not saying I don't do them myself I'm just trying to create an alternate space that is also more open to a longer form writing you know and I wanted a space which just felt more more appropriate for longer forms of sharing like you know Instagram is a used to be anyway you wouldn't know the way they try and uh, (laughs) try and choke you with trying to make a reel every second of the day (laughs) but it it was originally built as a photo sharing app you know so I still try and treat it as that and also trying to build my own space 
you know, or cultivate my own space online that feels very sacred to me. And something like my love letter, as I'm calling it, not just my newsletter, but my love letter is a space where I can I can share intimately in a space that I've cultivated for myself. You know, like I know there's a like and comment feature, but it does, it, that's not what it's about. You know, it's about every person on there has specifically subscribed to receive this piece of writing. Yeah, they want your voice. And, yeah, and I feel like I subscribe to loads of newsletters and that's that's the way that I'm really interacting with writing and, and that's the way that I'm actually engaging with most, um, not just writing, but it's to me it's my new social it's my social media I guess you know it's slower it requires more focus and for me writing is a really powerful medium that I'm really trying to practice because I really believe that words create worlds and it's a way it's a place where I can kind of you know I've always struggled with with being able to define myself in a world where we are asked to define our humanity by our jobs. Like it's something that I have a real issue with, you know, and it's a space that that I can cultivate and I can create who I am and merge all the different kinds of things that I'm interested in and the different kinds of things I do in a space and bring that into a reality. I also think that you express yourself incredibly through personal style. You seem to be quite bold with choices, support young designers. But how, what is your relationship like with, with fashion now? My relationship to fashion has changed a lot. Yes, clothes. I mean, style will always be important in my life. I really think it's a language. I think it's an incredible form of expression, an incredible form of, of art. You know, I think we are our own art forms, you know, and and I think it also has the power to 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 connect, you know, close our and, you know, we find our people often. Right. And but I also think that it's a lens that I'm using for me. I dress almost always for comfort now, but in a way that it's not just like I don't mean just in tracksuits or things like that. I just like I think there was a moment where before because I was my you know the narrative I was sharing with the world was so body centric I wore a lot of tight clothes and you know it was like you know things that made my my body shape or more obvious or you know and I'm really embracing almost the opposite everything I wear is almost oversized but in a way that like is it because you feel you don't need to make that point now I, yeah, no, yeah, I don't need to make that point now. And I also, what I dress myself in, I want to feel comfortable to be myself. Does that reflect how you feel? Are you feeling more relaxed yeah. with who you are as well? So that's reflected in... Totally. Can, I feel like... Yeah, an ease of clothes too. I also feel less like I have to prove myself, prove to, my, prove to the world that I'm someone who gets well-dressed. You know, like I don't like I know that I have my own style and I don't need to show that to everyone all the time in the way that, say, for example, we've cultivated social media. You know, it's like for me personally, that's just not the for me. It's a it's it's an extension of my expression. It's not, I don't have to force it. I don't I don't feel the need to force it anymore. 
you know, or, or especially also has a lot to do with the fact that I'm not seen in the same way, you know, I'm not moving through the world in the way that I used to where I was going to events all the time or having my photo taken all the time. And, you know, it's just, I feel just the most natural version of me. I don't wear any makeup. I've stopped wearing makeup maybe two years ago. Um, you know, like all of these things, it's just, I feel more beautiful because I'm not trying all the time to be more beautiful, if that makes any sense. Or, yeah. you know, it's just like, there's, there feels like there's beauty in the surrender to just being a bit messy. Where before. But that's, but that's, <laughs> That, that that comes from confidence, doesn't it? And that's a change in confidence. Yeah, and also an ease in, my, in like you said, you know, an ease in myself, and also the surprise was seeing that I found myself more interesting or beautiful when I was try, trying not to put on a look or put together a look, or you know, like it, or it, trying to be trying to be what other people think you are. I'm finding now that actually where I am even is even changing my style and so I'm playing with almost the location in a way of now that I'm living in Milan like you know not out of being feeling forced to but I want to be like a slightly chicer version of myself I am getting older and in a way that I want to embrace what it means to just wear nice fabrics and buy less but but really treat my clothes well in a way that you know when you are going out and doing things all the time and being seen you you get caught into this you know thing of feeling like you always need something new or you need or you can't be sh- seen in the same thing again or the embarrassment or the shame that comes in that and you know and and I just have dispelled all those myths and it's really interesting because all my stuff is also stuck in storage because I've been in between flats so I've just been wearing the same clothes and I'm fine <laughs> I think that's such an amazing, amazing place to be, even though I am looking forward to your Italian transformation. <laughs> Are you a planner? Tell me more about future plans. Um, I am a planner, but I'm also not a planner. So, you know, I have, I'm always in some mode of study. You know, I've been studying some I've, for the last 10 years. You're an eternal student. Of, I'm an eternal student. I always will be. So I have some kind of longer longer game or you know things that are going to take me a bit longer that are in the works I would like to write about another book that's not my immediate project at the moment because I'm just writing in general I'm writing all the time and and I'm writing and releasing to the world in a way that feels really freeing and it's also a way that I'm practicing different ideas they seeing what themes really stick for me which could be turned into something, a longer project or, or, or a book per se. But I think there's something so powerful about just the immediacy of being able to publish your own work on your own platform as, as, as you're thinking. I think books are a really long process. They're a huge feat. They're, you know, incredible and painful and all of, all of those things, life-changing experiences. But... I'm really not the kind of person that speaks or does things for the sake of needing to be seen or thought of as um, as present or zeitgeist in that way. I want to make work because it's the it's the right thing that I want to do at that time. And in and I'm in a phase of my life that I'm just bubbling underneath. You know, I'm learning things. 
I'm practicing things and because I don't share every single thing publicly or I'm not very active online in a way that I might have been before that other people are. Nobody really knows what I'm doing. And I think that there's a moment, you know, I think there's a downside to that, but I'm also getting ready to sprout. You know, I, I'm taking my time. I'm in the soil where I'm I'm, I'm, I'm nourishing and growing and, and practicing. I was going to ask the question of how you switch off in your downtime, but it sounds like writing for you is almost like a form of meditation. Um, it is, it is, but it also feels like my work at the moment. It's a place of pondering. And I think we live in a world where, you know, we're really living in this very toxic time of binary opinions, of very, you know, of this very right wrong left right this this and the and the kind of room for nuance for growing something slowly where in this age of immediacy there seems to be no time and everyone is so laden with information all the time how could you even really process anything or really think about what do I think about this and for me writing is a as a place where I'm doing that work where I'm I'm documenting or archiving the process, the slow process of change and transformation and archiving it in a way that I'm really pushing myself to learn and think differently about things. And, and it's, it's a softer space thinking about, you know, the, the practicing softness in a hard world. Like I mean that because, you know, in the age of takedowns and call outs and, you know, uh, all of these things, I understand why the way why they exist, but I don't know how much they really ch- force us to change. So, and that's that nuanced space of cha- where we can change, where we learn, where you know. But environments need to feel safe for us to grow. And so, I'm interested in that. That's the space that I'm interested in. Well, on that subject, who? are the champions of change who are inspiring you now? Ah, so many, so many, Um, you know, in my eternal school of life. You know, I think that's also why I I really love learning because I think so often we think of learning as something we can only do in a university or in in a space that's built for, you know, quote unquote, education. But there's so many incredible people out there sharing their work. And this is the best of the internet, you know. I think uh, off the top of my head, someone like Adrienne Marie Brown, who, yeah, is an incredible scholar, activist, thinker, writer about, uh, you know, podcaster. She uses all the mediums and she really forces us to, yeah, rethink or get in the right relationship to change, as she calls it. And um, and I really value her work. If anyone has never heard of her before, you know, pick up one of her many, many books. The ones I can suggest are um, Emergent Strategy, Pleasure Activism. So she's, she's the person that comes to mind. Well, thank you very much. I'm going to download those and I'm going to go and delete Instagram off my phone. Um, Thank you so much. This has been inspiring. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. Champions of Change was brought to you by Netta Porte and Chalk and Blade. 
hosted by Net-A-Porter's content director Alice Casely Hayford and fashion director Kay Barron. The team at Net-A-Porter was Katie Barrington as the senior editor, with casting by Annabelle Brog and Olivia Wakefield, and coordination by Erin Shanahan. The producer at Chalk and Blade was Laura Hyde. Original music by Alexis Adamora, and the series was mixed by Nasson De Silva. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review and tell us who your champions of change are.